the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple. We're the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. I'm Andrew Berg and with me tonight is Coach B. Coach, how are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Glad to be back on the pod. Yeah, welcome back. Gaby's still unavailable. She's counting ballots in Brazil, uh, (laughs) trying to pin down the results of that election tonight, trotting the globe as always. Uh, But happy to have Coach with us to help preview the Oregon State game and take a little look around the rest of the conference. Uh, Probably be a little bit of a shorter episode this week with no Husky game to review. We did survive the bye week. Uh, The bye did manage 275 passing yards and three touchdowns, but we were able to survive. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about Oregon State a little bit. Uh, The Beavers, also six and two, just like UW. Uh, They've won their last three in a row. They've had three games come down to the last play, which have been uh, three, not just like exciting games, but three crazy finishes. Their win over Fresno State, the loss to USC with the last second touchdown pass, and the uh, win over Stanford where uh, the entire Cardinal defense converged on a receiver who then danced his way into the end zone with eight seconds left. The last two have been a little lower stress against Washington State and Colorado. What have been your general impressions of Jonathan Smith's team so far this year before we get into the X's and O's of this matchup? Generally speaking, um, you know, I think it's safe to say that everybody uh, at UW Doug Pound kind of has respect for Jonathan Smith's program. He does it the you know, kind of like the the right way, quote unquote. You know, like um, his team's always fairly sound. They play pretty well on both sides. They're always pretty solid. Kind of punch above their weight a little bit. Um, kind of interesting. Um, this season, I think a big narrative for them was their shift at quarterback. Um, Mid season, uh, Chance Nolan was the incumbent starter. He's since been replaced by uh, Goldberg. Goldbrenson? Yeah, I think that's what you said correctly. Yeah, Ben Goldbrenson. Right, right. and I think they've announced that he's going to be the starter this week. Uh, Kind of gave, you know, kind of the coaches cliche, oh, he gets us into the the right plays more often. And kind of based on what we know from Smith's time at UW, you know, his offense does put a lot on the quarterback to do some of the the pre-snap checks and getting them into – or maybe not getting them into the right play, but getting them out of bad plays, kind of like what we saw when um, he was here uh, paired up with Jake Browning uh, at UW. So it'll be kind of interesting to see. I think even though Nolan started one of the first four games of the season, he's still their leading passer, right? So kind of my takeaway is that uh, Goldbrinson hasn't been like a huge playmaker for them, but their offense does look pretty solid they looked you know they ran up a whole bunch of points against Colorado um their last in their last game um but I I think kind of what you said three of their games being uh uh one possession games uh this season they're they're right in that they they had a good shot at upsetting USC uh towards the end of September um, that was kind of surprising, but not completely unexpected, right? Like we said, 
kind of punching above their weight. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I think we all have some, some pretty, uh, some, some respect for the, for the Beavers as they come into our, into our uh, stadium this week. Yeah. It, it's interesting that we come, we are running into them at a time when Nolan and Gulbrinson have played almost exactly as much as one another. Uh, Nolan started the year as the incumbent and had more playing time. Uh, had an injury, I believe it was a concussion. I don't know if they ever officially announced that, but it seemed to be relatively confirmed. Uh, Goldbrinson took over and and Jonathan Smith announced that he'd be continuing the start, even though Nolan's available to play now. They played roughly equivalent amounts. Nolan has thrown 11 more passes this year, 111 to 100. They definitely, as you alluded to, kind of skewed more towards uh, the run, which they like to do anyway. Uh, Nolan's probably a little bit more of a, a runner between the two of them, but mm-hmm. neither of them are run first quarterbacks. Uh, right. But interestingly, uh, Galbrinson, he's, he's had three starts. He's had 29 pass attempts, 24 and 22. So it's an offense that likes to run the ball first and establish the run. And they've leaned into that even more with Galbrinson under center. Uh, their, their stats overall look pretty similar uh, completion percentage within one and a half percent of each other, their average yards per attempt, 8.5 for Nolan, 8.2 for Goldbrinson. Not a big difference there. The place that stands out is the interceptions, eight for Nolan and three for Goldbrinson. And obviously, if all else being equal, you'd probably rather have the guy who's not turning the ball over as frequently. Uh, but Goldbrinson's yep. also been sacked three times more often, six to two, uh, which speaks to his relative lack of mobility compared to Nolan, which is, you know, taken all together, probably a good thing for the Huskies because the ability to get after a an immobile or a less mobile quarterback has been such an important thing for UW's defense. But I'm interested to hear a little bit uh, on your point of view. Like I said, Oregon State really likes to run the ball. They're, I think, sixth in the country in percentage of plays called that are, are runs relative to their passes, which is, you know, not what you necessarily would associate with Smith at first blush, having seen him as the OC at UW, but he's kind of trended in that direction over time. How does that mm-hmm. set up? for UW's defense, the way that we've been playing the last few weeks as we've played some more pass-happy teams or teams that at least have chosen to pass against our defense. How do you see that shaking out this week? Are we going to see a lot more runs, or is it going to be uh, Oregon State's going to be more opportunistic against the part of our defense that has struggled more? See, that's 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 a tough question right there. Um, my, my inclination is to say that they're going to stick with what they're good at, stick with um, – kind of that run first or at least rushing oriented offense, right? Kind of sets everything up. And we saw that even when um, Smith was at UW in 2016 and, you know, for all the talent, you know, Dante Pettis, John Ross, Jake Browning, the like, we still ran the offense, a huge portion of the offense through Miles Gaskin and Von Coleman back then, right? And that set everything else up. So I, I think that that, core portion of their offense they're still going to be at at a very minimum like balanced maybe not necessarily run heavy but balanced is at kind of what i'm expecting um the tricky part though is that you know i was kind of doing um a little bit of research ahead of the podcast and what i noticed is that and kind of backs up my uh anecdotal you know memory of of that offense is that Smith isn't afraid to change things up. He, he isn't afraid to 
identify, okay, what's working? Let's go with that, right? Whether that's the quarterback change that we already talked about, right? Like, okay, you know, Nolan's pretty good doing these things, but I think, you know, the sum of everything, Goldbrunson gives them a better shot, you know, at quarterback there. Or I was looking at the, the rushing uh, leaders so far this season on a game-by-game basis, right? They've had, I want to say, four different, like, lead rushers, you know, they have Coletto, who is like their wildcat guy, who also plays linebacker, I believe, but a former quarterback there. They had Fenwick. And then lately it's been um, Martinez, mm-hmm. who I think at this point is their leading rusher um, on the season. Uh, I believe he's a true freshman. Right. Pretty, yeah. Pr- pretty big running back, all things considered. I want to say like six foot, about 215 ish. And that he's, he's kind of just clicked with their more zone heavy run schemes. Still pretty diverse run schemes but I, I can't remember their offensive line coach the, the name escapes me right now but he's he's put together some fairly solid offensive lines during Smith's tenure at Oregon State even though they don't really have the most talented linemen right I mean I, I don't think it's any stretch to say that UW's talent on paper far surpasses Oregon State's on the line of scrimmage but they play really well together they know the scheme inside and out, and as a unit, they've been doing really well. So, you know, um, that that kind of plays into it. And then I also looked at the the receiving leaders on a game by game basis, and you know, um, the tight ends have been a big part of the Jonathan Smith offense over the years. Um, Musgrave was a returning starter, tight end for them. He was a good playmaker last year. He was a leader in the first couple games and switched to Treshawn Henderson or Harrison, rather. I believe that's his name. Yep. Garfield grad. Garfield guy. By way um, of Florida State. Yes. He, he hopped around. I know his name popped up when he entered the transfer portal and we were kind of like, okay, would UW be interested? We ended up not going after him too hard, if I remember correctly. But um, he's he's been a key player for them. Uh, Lindsay as well, another transfer receiver, good talent coming out of high school. Um, he's popped up every now and then, and then, um, Velling the last couple of games, a uh, big body tight end, uh, younger guy from Seattle. I want to, I want to say good receiver. Um, but you know, it's all of these different pieces where it's, it might not be as easy to just be like, okay, we're going to double team this one guy over here and then everybody else just stop the run. You know, I think Smith's going to play it, um, you know, play the game plan for the first quarter at a minimum, maybe the first half and then see what's working and isn't afraid to change things up a little bit. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I, you, you, they do have the personnel to do different things. It, mm-hmm. it, to, to that, to what you were saying, they choose to run the ball a lot. That seems to be the preference, and I'm sure that if that's working for them, the, they'll prefer to keep doing it that way. It's also interesting when you mention the uh, the lack of high end talent or the inability to bring just for for structural reasons, being in Corvallis, having fewer resources, they're not able to recruit five-star high four-star players out of high school but they've definitely made it their mo to find talent that has that was rated like that and didn't work out in their initial 
destination and then uh, ended up found their way there. Harrison is an example of that starting off at FSU. He's a, a four-star nationally highly regarded wide receiver and he's blossomed for Oregon State. He's been really excellent for them this year and he's made some really big plays. Lindsay was a, a almost five-star recruit as I recall uh, coming out of high school and went to Nebraska. Didn't work out there and he's he's come to, uh, to Corvallis. And then the, the stable of running backs they just recruited from all over the country. You mentioned Fenwick, who who I've always been a big fan of. He started at South Carolina. He's an absolute bruiser, but he's from Florida. Uh, they've got Jam Griffin is their other timeshare running back who's from Georgia, started off at Georgia Tech and transferred to Oregon State. And then Martinez, who you mentioned, has kind of become their home run hitter and leads in overall rushing yards, comes from Louisville, Texas. So their, their backfield, the, the three-headed running back monster from Texas, Georgia, and Florida in uh, a small town in Oregon is a very they're not paying attention to where, where guys are growing up. The recruiting footprint does not end uh, in Oregon or the Northwest, and it doesn't end at the end of high school. So they've been creative in how they've acquired talent. So even if they don't have the top 25 recruiting classes year in and year out, they are finding ways to bring talent to Corvallis. And I think to your point, that has made their offense dynamic enough that they can adapt. And that's, you know, really a lot of credit to Smith for that, because I, I think that's a, a place where a lot of, coaches would stub their toes and he's been creative and he's found other ways to make it work for sure. I think you that, that's a great point to emphasize more than maybe I alluded to where this isn't like the old school thinking of Oregon state, you know, more regional based recruiting, you know, just punching above their weight just for that level of talent. They do have legitimate talent, right. Where, I mean, I think that kind of played a factor in their ability to play all of those one possession games and have a shot at beating USC earlier this season, maybe catching them on an off night and they have a good game. They have the talent at the skill positions on offense, at least, to really make a difference. And their coaching has taken over for maybe their lack of talent, you know, comparative lack of talent at the line of scrimmage, at least offensive line, right? So, you know, it's we definitely gotta gotta change our perception of what kind of a program and what kind of talent on the roster that they have. Um, definitely have a shot at giving our defense a long night um, this Friday. Yeah, and you you mentioned Velling. He's probably worth noting too. Another true freshman, the tight end from Seattle Prep, uh, wasn't a highly regarded recruit, but was not off the radar. I, obviously we were in kind of an awkward position last year with our recruiting class and the timing of the coaching change, but it would not, not, I don't think anybody would have turned up their nose at a really versatile tight end who can catch the ball and is a really good blocker. He seems like right out of that uh, kind of Kate Otten, uh, Drew Sample, Will Disley mold of guys that really thrived in the Chris Peterson years. And it's a shame that we don't have one of those guys coming through the, the pipeline right now. But let's look at the other side of the ball, too, because the games typically this year for the Huskies haven't so much been won or lost uh, by, by how they've defended, but whether they can outscore the opponents. And Oregon State's defense has an interesting profile. Their defense against the pass has generally been good. Uh, they're 23rd in success rate against passing. They're 31st in expected points uh, against the passing offense, expected points per play. They have not been good against the run. They've been well below average they've traditionally been a team that really likes to bring exotic pressures and a lot of pressure. Our offensive line has done pretty well in those situations this year. And a lot of credit goes to Michael Penix for being able to identify the pressures and get the ball out quickly when he needs to. 
Is there any reason from what you've seen to believe that this defense will have more success against the Husky offense than, you know, the myriad of other teams who have given up many, many points <laughs> to one of the better passing offenses in the country? That's, you know, it's, it's tough to say. I haven't completed my whole film study so far for kind of like the defensive preview here um, for this week, but, you know, just looking back at our last game where that was the first, you know, against Cal where that was the first game we were held to under 30 this year. Um, and I, and that, that's always the tough part is once one of your opponents figures out, okay, here's the key to slowing down the offense that gives a blueprint for everybody else down the line on your schedule to kind of be like, okay, let's see if we can, can adapt that. Right. And Cal really uh well coached not necessarily you know the, the key for them wasn't just having a talent advantage on defense to slowing us down or something like that so i think while you say that you know exotic pressures and things like that are kind of been more of their mo for oregon state i think they might try to you know take a uh you know take notes and apply the, the similar game plan of just eliminate the big play big plays have been a huge part of our passing offense always taking shots downfield trying to get you know mcmillan or rome or somebody you know free uh deep downfield without that you know we were still reasonably effective we still scored 28 points we still you know maintained but because we're so reliant on an explosive passing attack and scoring in chunks and outscoring opponents, right? We don't get those big 15 to 20 yard plus plays in the passing game. It really kind of throws off our whole offense. You know, sure, Penix is still accurate. Our receivers still can catch well underneath. They'll still have a pretty high level of efficiency, but the big plays are 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 pivotal to all of that and making sure, you know, a questionable referee call or penalty or something like that that we've seen from Pac-12 refs, you know, sending us behind the sticks if we can't get a 15-yard pass play, you know, on a first down holding where we're behind the sticks. It, it really throws off our whole um, kind of rhythm as far as being able to, to stay aggressive and, you know, setting up a second and medium or second and short where we can, you know, take a shot, you know, downfield or something like that. So, that that's something that I'm curious to see with you know the extra time that they have to prepare for us if they kind of shift gears more towards um, Cal's type of uh, game plan there. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I, I, Max and I talked about this last week that you could say that Cal had an effective blueprint because they held us to 28 points. You could also say that there were somewhere between seven to 17 points that could have very easily been on the board that weren't uh, due to a combination of dubious calls and missed field goals that usually go in. And those that's legitimate. I'm not saying that we, you can just hand wave that away, but in terms of game planning for future games, I don't think you expect those things to happen repeatedly. And if we had finished with 35 or 38 or 41 points or something, would we be saying that the Cal blueprint was effective? Uh, and, you know, for the purposes of examining how it will work in future weeks. And it may be that we we see Oregon State start out that way. And if Penix and uh, Ryan Grubb handle the soft zone shell the same way that they did in the second half against Cal, 
and uh, just kind of pick it apart by going sideline to sideline and letting receivers make plays and using Penix's very, very good anticipation and accuracy. You know, we scored 21 point, 22 points in the second half against Cal. If we do that in the first half against the soft defense uh, by Oregon State, I doubt we see them come out with that same strategy again in the second half. So it kind of oh, depends sure. on on execution as much as it does on strategy. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested, you know, so we're the Huskies are favored by three and a half. The fact that it's a home game, very important here. The fact that the, the forecast is for heavy rain is also going to be relevant, particularly to the total score. Uh, but what do you think the keys to this game are and where do you think it ultimately winds up score-wise? Uh, see, that's that's tough for me. I, I, I'm That was tough. I'm not asking you to give the score from last week, two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> True, but um, it's, it's, well, it's, it's tough to predict this in the sense where I, I always want to say, Oh yeah, you know, maybe the rushing defense isn't that great. Maybe we'll finally turn around and say, Hey, Cam Davis take over the game or something like that. But we haven't really seen that approach. Um, and you know, two thirds of the way through the season, I don't think that they're going to pivot to something like that. Um, barring some apocalyptic type of rain event where nobody can catch or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Um, although we have seen that against uh, Cal, was it three or four years ago? Yeah. So who's who's to say? <laughs> Apocalyptic weather, not out of the question. The, I remember the Arizona game in, I want to say, 2014 or so, where it was similar to that. But it, for some reason, affected Arizona a lot more than us. And it was kind of lopsided by the end. Sure. Right. Um, I, I'm still confident that we're going to score over 30 points. Um, to your point, you know. There was definitely points on the table that, you know, would have buoyed our point totals against Cal. Um, definitely had a shot at getting into the 30s or something like that against them. So even if Oregon State copies the blueprint and runs it as effectively as Cal, I, I certainly think can still surpass uh, that point total there. Um, I, I think the key will be game planning enough on defense to slow down their run right which you know we have a i would say kind of somewhere around league average run defense which is perfectly fine you know but then because it's all built off of that don't get lulled into just selling out against the run and then giving up a stupid big play in the pass game right you know it's uh jonathan smith's uh offense is fairly creative you know maybe some some double pass plays or something like that where we're so focused on on the run game or, you know, the quick passing game or something like that, that then, you know, maybe they get a couple quick hitters off of us. Like, you know, even Cal, not a very good offense, at least compared to Oregon state, they still had a couple of big plays on us in the second half. And that's kind of what got them rolling and kind of, you know, giving us a little bit of stress down the stretch. Right. Um, so I, I think that's going to be the key is, is even if they go heavy into their run game, there's always a chance with those guys that the big pass play could flip things in a hurry. Yeah. And I think because we're anticipating seeing a lot of runs, it'll be even more important that the tackling is effective. There have mm-hmm. been times this year when we've had safeties in the box or, you know, the, the Husky position or whoever's coming in just has, has not had been in position and missed the tackles. And we have most of a, of a healthy defensive lineup coming out of the bye week 
and we would expect those guys to be effective tackling and absolutely need that to be the case. So the three and four yard runs that we can hopefully limit them to don't turn into six or seven yard runs that extend drives. And then offensively, like we talked about being able to protect uh, Michael Penix being the offensive line has been so good against uh, keeping him upright and limiting pressure and, it's going to be very important against the team that likes to put pressure on the quarterback as part of its passing philosophy, pass defense philosophy. So I, I think if we can do those two things, I do like the Huskies to win, you know, something in the mid thirties to something in the mid twenties. I do like the, the fact that Oregon state prefers to run the ball so much just because we've had more luck against the run than we have against the pass. Uh, and those tendencies are not easily broken as uh, you know, the preference based tendencies, so I, I I think I like that, but this is not like a, an 80-20 game. This is kind of like the 60-40 type game where a couple little things go wrong. It could be an issue. And I mean, the Huskies have played four straight games that have been within 10 points. Uh, Oregon State has played, as we talked about earlier, a bunch of really close, really exciting games. There's a good chance that this one comes down to the wire as well. And it's going to, you know, little things, making field goals in the rain, not fumbling the ball are going to matter a lot. So I, I think if I'm ma- making a final score prediction to be something like 31 to 26, I like the Huskies to win, but it's going to be, it's going to be competitive down to the end. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're right on the money. Maybe like, yeah, I was, I was thinking maybe 31 seems pretty reasonable, maybe 34, depending on the field position situation kind of as the game progresses and then maybe like 34 27 maybe even 30 i i'm not really sure i think also given the weather uh and the forecast for this friday it wouldn't surprise me either if um if oregon state in the first half or at least reasonably early in the game gets a couple of those big plays on us if they try to just kill the clock and play kind of like the more Stanford style from yesteryear where just eliminate as many possessions as possible and try to try to, you know, win one in a lower scoring affair. So tough to say, but I, I I do like your score prediction right there. Yeah. And to, to that end, I I mentioned earlier, there was a a monsoon game against uh, Arizona in 2013. I found it while we were talking this is against an Arizona team that came in at three and one and the Huskies were four and oh, a horrible rain, but Arizona tried to keep a relatively balanced approach threw the ball 37 times for 119 yards for a 3.2 yard per attempt average. Oof. The Huskies did not try to maintain balance, ran the ball 61 times, including 40 carries for Bishop Sankey, 40 carries and won the game 31 to 13. So hopefully we're not in for a game like that. Cause I don't think that uh, script would bode well for UW on Friday, uh, but let's take our break. Now we'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit about the PAC 12 title race and make our selections for who will make the conference title game. So stick around. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to talk about the four teams at the top of the conference. And when I say four, yes, it's possible that UW or Oregon state could come out of this weekend's game and make a push for the top of the conference. But uh, thanks to Max who guested on our podcast last week. Here's the list of requirements for the Huskies to get into the Pac-12 title game. It's a, it's a simple six-step process, so stick with me. <laughs> One, the Huskies win out just really easily, just win out, just beat Oregon, beat Wazoo, win all four games remaining. Two, Arizona State upsets UCLA at home on Saturday. They're a 9.5-point underdog, so that's very unlikely. 
Three, Arizona upsets Utah on the road on Saturday, a 17-and-a-half-point underdog. That one is very hard to see happening. Four, Oregon beats Utah at home in Week 12. Five, USC beats UCLA on the road in Week 12. And six, Oregon State upsets Oregon at home in Week 13. So any one of those things individually might have a chance of happening, but all six of them in a row, pretty unlikely, which is how we land at Oregon, USC, Utah, and UCLA being the four teams in competition for the Pac-12 title game at the moment. They all have zero losses, Oregon, or one, the other three. Kind of handicap this race for me a little bit. We'll get into the specifics about schedules and matchups and things like that. But of these four teams right now, who is really uh, standing out to you as the cream of the crop? You know, I, it might be a little bit of bias just because we've already played uh, UCLA, but I, I, I think UCLA, how they're playing. I, I like it. But I think Oregon has the best shot, right? Um, my money would go on to Oregon as much as that pains me to say. Um, you know, like you said, they have a little bit more margin of error because they're undefeated in conference play. They've looked pretty solid, um, actually really solid. I'll give them credit for that uh, over the last month or so in particular. Um, and, you know, of their remaining schedule, you know, like I think for whatever reason, um, Jonathan Smith's beaver teams have always played them pretty tough in the civil war game or whatever they're calling it these days and then you know i i definitely think that we have a puncher's chance of upsetting them as well um i'm i'm still not sold on usc overall and that's kind of you know a big reason why i'm kind of you know i'd still favor ucla to beat them in the battle for la at the end of the season and then utah Big question for me is like, you know, watching the Utah WSU game last week, Thursday, I just have no idea what's the status of all of their starters. Mm-hmm. Um, WSU, solid team for sure. I'll give the Cougs credit for that. And they had a legitimate shot at pulling off a Thursday night upset last week. But that was really only because they were uh, Utah was down their starting quarterback, their starting running back, and I believe their top two tight ends, which is mm-hmm. like the key to their passing game, right? So, you know, like I said, Utah, really solid team. They, they even without all of those key players, still beat a solid WSU team. But I just don't know what to make of them if these guys – are going to be back if they're going to be playing anywhere close to 100% if they come back and you know WSU solid team right but not on the same tier as say a you know USC UCLA or whatever right if they have a matchup later on down the season the championship game yeah and it's also difficult to make predictions about Utah because we don't nobody knows what the status of their their top players is uh, nobody even in Salt Lake City knew that Bryson Barnes was going to be starting until he came out of the huddle, uh, came out for the huddle of the first snap uh, against Washington State last week. It was a big surprise for everybody. So that that definitely throws a wrench into any kind of predictions. I, I think two of the things, I think you kind of peripherally touched on these, but I, I think are worth focusing on uh, revolve around the schedule. One is that particularly if you're looking at Utah as kind of having a bit of a tougher road the rest of the way due to health. That means that USC and UCLA, both one loss teams 
are going to be fighting for that second spot behind Oregon, possibly. And when they play each other head to head in week 12, it's going to mean a lot. And uh, that, that obviously could be the deciding game for who goes to the conference title game. And I, I, I don't know who's going to win that game. I think you could make a compelling argument for either team. You could look at USC and say, you know, they there have been weeks when their offense kind of laid an egg, like the Oregon State game. And there have definitely been weeks where their defense did not hold up its end of the bargain, giving up 43 against Utah, giving up 37 against Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, even lesser opponents scoring in the high 20s. So th- th- you can also look at Utah and say, like, they just didn't really show up against Oregon. They didn't play terribly, but they also didn't raise their level of play at all. And uh, they, you know, Chip Kelly didn't really necessarily coach the best game in that that one. He kind of mismanaged the clock in the middle eight minutes of the game and let USC have an extra possession. I'm sorry, let Oregon have an extra possession. Uh, was, you know, kicking field goals when they were in a shootout and it kind of the types of mistakes or types of, of decisions that you don't usually attribute to somebody as tenured and, and analytically sound as Kelly usually is. Uh, so you kind of worry about that as well. And their defense obviously has had issues throughout the year. So I, it's pretty easy to talk yourself out of either of those teams. Uh, I think if I was betting on it in the end, I'd probably be picking USC right now, but I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in it. And then we'd get the USC Oregon game that isn't happening on the schedule. The other interesting uh, wrinkle in this is Oregon's remaining schedule because they are the one undefeated team and that gives them the inside track. And yes, they do already have the win over UCLA, which is big, and they miss USC in the regular season, but they still, they finish the regular season with UW, Utah, Oregon State, who, you know, UW and Oregon State, as we've talked about at length, probably not in the top four of the conference, but they're probably five and six and they're they're probably both bowl-bound teams. They're probably you know, arguably both teams will win eight or more games. You don't get it to pencil in a win against a eight or nine win college football team in conference. It's it's not an easy thing. It's like a, you know, at best uh, two out of three shot for you. So winning all three of those in a row, definitely not a sure thing. And once you, if you drop one of them, say UW does uh, go into uh, Otson and, and pulls out an upset. Those last two games become pretty nerve wracking. And like you mentioned that last week of the regular season, that Oregon state game, if that's a must win in Corvallis uh, and they, the recent history that they've had in that game, uh, that could mean a lot. And it could be very, very scary for Oregon fans uh, given where they are sitting right now. I think ultimately I'm going to pick Oregon beating USC in the conference title game which isn't very much different than where we would have started. I think those two teams in Utah were probably the three that everybody had penciled in at the top of the conference. And Utah would be right there if they were fully healthy and still could get there if they recover. But I think where we stand now, that's, that's the, the bet I would be making, but things can change in a hurry. Oh, for sure. And, and kind of building off of your point on Oregon's remaining schedule, right. Is, you know, I, I don't know what it is. Nobody knows what the injury situation for Utah is. But if Utah miraculously comes back to anywhere close to full strength and their style of play and the way that they played against Oregon last year with largely similar rosters to this year, you know, with the exception, you know, key exception being um, Bo Nix and all of that this Mm -hmm. year for Oregon, is if Utah gets healthy, plays Oregon, beats Oregon, right? And then Oregon or, you know, some other schedule issue pops up where it ends up being Oregon versus Utah again. You know, I, in, in the conference championship game, that is, 
I really want to root for Utah for the upset pick on that one. If, if that scenario pans out, right. Um, styles make matchup or whatever that saying goes and, or fights or whatever it is. But you know, it's, I think because we've already seen the Oregon UCLA kind of relative dud right there on that matchup the other week. Um, and then USC's very, I don't, I don't want to say inconsistent, but they have they don't have a complete team that can truly dominate with full com or you can't have full confidence that everything's going to come together for them in any particular game, especially a high pressure situation with a conference championship game. I Utah would be the scariest matchup for Oregon if I were the Ducks for a Pac-12 title game. Yeah, so. and it's worth noting noting since we've talked so much about their injury situation. Kyle Whittingham's press conference this week understand, understandably revolved almost entirely around questions about injuries. It sounds like Cam Rising will be fine. He will probably play this week. They were so evasive about what happened with Rising that it's hard to really tell what was going on, but it sounded like he was on track to play and just kind of tweaked something the day of or even during warmups and it didn't didn't work out. And that Dalton Kincaid, who at least in my mind is probably the next most important player on that roster for playmaking purposes is probably a little further behind, but not what it does not sound implausible that he could be back by the time they play uh, Oregon. So if those two are back, like you said, that changes a lot. That's probably, that's, I, I think a pretty good summary of where the conference stands right now. Let's close it up and let's talk a little bit about our recommendations and plugs. Is there anything uh, you have going on or that you've watched or listened to or, smelled or heard or anything else in the last couple of weeks that has caught your attention? Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't say explicitly non UW football related. because uh, <laughs> I, I inevitably forget about preparing one, but I did mention it in our, in our writer's chat that this past weekend, very relevant um, to both my usual plug for Lincoln high school football in Wallingford and UW football is so Lincoln, um, played in the Metro League playoffs uh, this past weekend against Garfield High School. First time Lincoln has made the Metro League playoffs in their current existence. So very exciting on my part. Um, and topically for us is this was just days after Garfield's quarterback, EJ Kamenong, um, committed to play quarterback for uh, UW. And so I got a front row seat at, you know, kind of seeing what he can do. Very talented quarterback more of an athlete than we've seen over the last few years. Uh, folk game recruited much more like a Lincoln kind Holtz kind of a thing or a type of player at least. Uh, but it was, it was good to watch that. And um, I, I think there are uh, exciting things in the future. If he does end up playing in the next three years or so at UW and um, yeah. So it's just kind of a confluence of the different things that I got going on uh, for me. Yeah. That's exciting. I we, we haven't talked a lot about recruiting in season, but what has been developing with Kyan Holtz through his senior year and also looking ahead to Kamenong, the the idea of these really athletic, physical quarterbacks is not something we've had in recent years. Uh, you have to go back a while. I mean, I guess maybe Siler Miles is the last one who just not not just the ability to run, but just like the physical imposition is it's a fun thing to think about. I know that's something that uh, DeBoer's staff values, so I, I I like that as a something that we're pursuing. He obviously knows what he's doing developing quarterbacks. 
I don't have a one um, great recommendation, but there are three things I'm just going to quickly mention. Uh, one, uh, my wife made a reservation for us to go to Musang, which is a Filipino restaurant in uh, Beacon Ooh. Hill last week. I was super impressed. Uh, really loved it. it it's, I mean, it's it's like fine dining without being fancy or stuffy or uh, formal. It's very low key. Uh, you know, they were playing like Prince and other 80s dance music. And the waitress that we had was wearing like a, a Halloween themed Skeletor shirt. So oh, it certainly wasn't stuffy, but it was really, really well done. I, I, they have a, a peanut curry short rib that I guess stays on their menu all the time, even when they're rotating things. Really recommend it. Um, I think it, it is a place that requires some forethought and planning and making reservations in advance, but loved it. Um, also, uh, I'm going to check out UW Soccer, number one in the country on Thursday night to play UCLA. Might be worth uh, heading over there. I, apparently, the weather's not going to be great, but it's going to be uh, a very competitive game. UW's undefeated for the year. Uh, undefeated, obviously, all also in pack play. So could be an exciting finish to the year. And then lastly, I, I don't know if this is even relevant, but I've been rewatching Arrested Development. I haven't been watching a lot of new TV shows uh, recently, but I've been rewatching Arrested Development. And it's amazing how a 20-year-old sitcom, comedy usually doesn't age very well, but like 80 or 90% of the jokes from that show are still just hilarious. So well-written, so funny. Uh, if just trying to kill time, people who've watched like Seinfeld in the office like 17 times through this is also one you could just kind of have on in the background and enjoy so that's uh, a smorgasbord of light recommendations uh to wrap up with any final thoughts from you coach I have heard about that restaurant recommendation was it Musang or something like that yeah Musang M-U-S-A-N-G we also brought my yeah. daughter three years old and she went absolutely crazy for it except uh when I gave her a smoked oyster she did not did not like that <laughs> Yes, I've had I've heard very good things about that place. So glad that you enjoyed it. I might have to go make some plans for that. Also, if you're on the light rail, we took the light rail there. It's like a one minute walk from the the Beacon Hill light rail station. So always up for a great train ride. Oh, there we go. Sounds like a lot of fun. So that that should do it. Thanks for uh, listening this week. Even though we didn't have a game to recap, hopefully we were able to entertain you. Nonetheless, be somewhat informative. It's exciting. Looking forward to this Oregon State game. Hopefully next week, uh, maybe Gabe will be back. Maybe we'll be able to do the the triple threat podcast we've been trying to schedule all year with Gabe and Coach B and myself. And if not, maybe we'll get Cody Pickett. You can you can always keep hoping. So thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs. <laughs>